Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Glad you guys are here this morning. Uh, I remember reading a few years ago about uh, a kind of a list of FDA standards uh, for food items that are sold in grocery stores. And it was like so jaw-dropping that I had to look it up on the internet and kind of go to the FDA uh, site to see actually if this was true, and it is. Let me share a few of these with you this morning. <laughs> Just, <laughs> it'll be fun. Okay, <laughs> the first one, like apple butter. Here's the standard for apple butter. Apple butter can't be sold if it has five or more whole insects per 100 grams of apple butter. If it has four or less, you're good to go, right? I mean, that's totally fine. It's within standards, that kind of thing. So make sure you think twice about spreading that puppy out on your toast. And mushrooms can't be sold if there's an average of 20 or more maggots of any size per 15 grams of dried mushroom. Mmm. Doesn't that sound good? All right. How about this? If there are 13 insect heads and 100 grams of fig paste, the FDA ruthlessly tosses out the whole batch, right? It will have none of it. Kind of makes you think twice about having a fig newton, doesn't it? <laughs> Yummy. Uh, wheat, in wheat flour, the FDA finds, if the FDA finds more than 75 insect parts per 50 grams of wheat flour, they'll throw it out. Again, 49, you're good to go. But 50 insect parts, isn't that crazy? Could make some good wheat toast and have some apple butter on that, I guess. But one more for you raisin lovers out there. The standard is not to exceed 10 or more whole insects and 35 fly eggs per eight ounce box of raisins. Isn't that crazy? I don't know about you, but uh, when it comes to food, water, right, that kind of stuff, purity is a big deal to me, right? I did not need to know this stuff. I did not need to have 34 fly eggs and nine whole insects in my box of raisins, right? That's just Purity is a big deal. These days, there's a, there's a lot going on that's about uh, dealing with uh, organic or like non-GMO or whatever. M increasingly so, this whole idea of purity in what goes into our body is a huge deal for us. Now, granted, uh, the FDA standards, I personally think could maybe be a little higher, right? <laughs> this is not like instilling a lot of confidence uh, for me, but uh, there's a standard there and it's becoming increasingly important to us. What I find sort of ironic uh, is that oftentimes, while, while we're becoming more and more and more careful about what we put into our body and this whole issue of purity that way, as a, as a culture, as a whole, I don't think we're really all that careful about our bodies themselves, right? Our souls, our hearts, when it comes to this entire issue of purity. We're on week number two of a series that we're doing here at Ignite called Once Upon a Time, Myths About Dating, Sex, and Happily Ever After. Last week, we talked about the right person myth, that whole idea that if we just meet Mr. Right or Miss Right, right, if we just meet the right person and we get together with them and whatever, that all will be blissful and happy and perfect in our lives, right? You kind of got to raise your foot and do the whole like magic. It'll be magical. We'll never fight because we're perfect together, right? We'll never have issues because everything is just marvelous. And we, we talked quite a bit about that and said, yes, finding the right person, that's important, right? But probably a lot less about chemistry and a lot more about character than what our society paints. And we went on and said, uh, and, and Finding the right person, to be honest, probably not nearly as important as becoming the right person, as us actually becoming uh, men and women of character, men and women who love Christ, uh, men and women who actually learn to love ourselves uh, rather than just expecting that we are on the receiving end of it all the time. And, and finally, we wrapped up and said, you know, the, the, the whole deal really is if you're looking to another person 
to find that magical quality and everything that's great and grand in life. If you're looking to that other person to find fullness and completeness, you're probably looking in the wrong place because Jesus Christ is the only one that can bring life and that can satisfy a soul like that. And so that's kind of what we talked about, this whole myth of the right person. Today I want to take it a, a, another step further and tackle another myth which is incredibly common in our society, and I'm calling it try before you buy, okay? It's the myth that says, hey, if you love one another, why don't you move in together? Why don't you sleep together? Why don't you play house together now to see if you're really compatible? It just makes sense, right? Now, you might be tempted to think this is only a message for single people, and it is, but look, hang with me. I guarantee you there will be application for you, okay? There will be stuff that will hit together. But this myth is everywhere. This try-before-you-buy myth is everywhere in our culture, isn't it? A couple is together for a while, and they start to realize they are in love. And before long, they start thinking to themselves, why in the world are we paying bills for two different places? Why are we spending all this time driving back and forth between my place and your place? Because we want to be together all the time. Wouldn't it be cheaper? Wouldn't it be easier? Wouldn't it be better if we just moved in together? It just makes sense, we think. The stats in our, uh, tell, tell us a story that this is becoming the norm in our culture. In a 2013 New U.S. News and World Report, they found that 48% of women move in with their mates before marrying them. Almost 25%, just a hair shy of 25% of young women under the age of 20 will move in with their uh, romantic partner before marriage. Living together is up 900% in the last 50 years. 900%. The last U.S. Census showed that two-thirds of married couples, uh, couples that were married in 2012, shared a home together for at least two years before getting married. And certainly, the stats on sex are even more bleak, and we know this just from living in our culture, do we not? Right? The, 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 the national average right now is that about 3% of Americans wait successfully to have sex until marriage. In the church scene, it's a little bit higher, but it's, it's under 20%, under one in five that successfully wait to have sex until marriage. We are a try-before-you-buy kind of culture. And to be honest, we think it's wise. We think it makes sense, right? Because, of course, you want to make sure that you're compatible first with somebody before you get married, we reason, right? If, if, if this were true, though, let me just say, wouldn't you expect that the stats would tell that story? That the stats would say, hey, if, you were, if this was a wise move and you were just doing your research and your due diligence before you got married, the couples that lived together first, that then were married, wouldn't you think that it would be better then? They would have a lower divorce rate if that were true. That they would right, have a higher happiness rate, a higher rate of them experiencing and enjoying life and love and sex and relationship way better than couples that just moved into this thing blindly. Would you think that would be true? It would make sense, wouldn't it? You know what the stats say, though? Completely the opposite. Not even close. I was actually blown away this week uh, when I started reeling, uh, reading through the stats and what they reveal about this try-before-you-buy myth in our culture. Listen, I, I just threw up a whole bunch of them here, but according to stats gathered by the U.S. Attorney's Legal Services, Living together before getting married doesn't accomplish the goal that couples think it will. A couple who does not live together prior to, prior to get, getting married, in other words, they go into this um, 
they get married first before they move in together. The, the normal average in the first five years of marriage is that they would have a 20% likelihood of getting divorced, 20% divorce rate of just a regular couple. Now, those that live together before they're married, look at that. In the first five years, 49% of them get divorced. It's 29% higher. It's almost a third higher likelihood of divorce. The next one down, if you go to the 10-year mark, it's the, same, it's the same spread, right? In 10 years, the average, the national average is about 33% of people that didn't live together before marriage get divorced, and those that did live together before marriage, 62% of them were divorced within the first 10 years. It's crazy, crazy, 29%, a third higher likelihood. There was a couple named Mike and Harriet McManus um, that did a huge, unbelievable research project, wrote a book called Living Together, Myths, Risks, and Answers. And in their book, they say this. They say, couples who live together are not only significantly more likely to divorce after marriage, but about 45% of them will break up even before marriage, studies show. Cohabitation, McManus said, has a high failure rate. Listen to this. Because he says it's based on selfishness. This is what he says the data says. If you make me feel loved, then I might marry you. If you make me happy, then I might marry you, McManus said. Love and marriage is an investment, but cohabitation is a gamble. Cohabitation is conditional, while marriage is based on permanence. These are radically different psychological premises. True love is selfless, he says, seeking to serve the other person. Cohabitation, though, is based on selfishness. How will the relationship satisfy me and meet my needs? He added that there's never been a study that's shown any positive benefits for cohabitation. Harriet McManus, uh, his wife, said this uh, when asked about this whole notion of a trial marriage. She said it's really, to be honest, the stats would say it's more like a trial divorce. The only question is whether you'll break it off before the wedding or after in a legal divorce. As one of our marriage educator friends says, she says, you can't practice permanence. Of 100 cohabitating couples, 85 break up either before the wedding or within the first 10 years of marriage. Only 15 couples will last to the 10-year mark. Only 15 out of 100. Living together, friends, the whole try before you buy mindset may make you feel more secure, but it increases your likelihood of, uh, of divorce by at least 33%, making relationships and marriages work is hard enough. The question that I was asking myself as I'm looking at these, all these stats this week, the question that I'm asking myself is, who in the world, why would we want to, to increase our likelihood of splitting up by a third? If I told you that, uh, you know, going to church or whatever would decrease your likelihood of, of getting cancer by a third, would you do it? Right? If I told you that, uh, that if you went out and ate Wonder Bread this week or something, that your likelihood of dying would go up by a third, would that get your attention? A third? 33% of the people that eat this die? Right? I mean, I, holy cow, this, a third is a huge number. Why in the world right, would we want to add a third to the, to the divorce stats? Okay, one more study, and then I'll, I'll shut up about these. I told you I was a numbers geek, so you guys are in trouble. But one more study. This was fascinating. Uh, a study that they did actually on people that waited to have sex until marriage, that 3% of the population. Listen, look what they found. Uh, they said 
Of that group that waited, they have a 22% higher relationship stability rate than those that didn't. They have a 20% higher relationship satisfaction, aka happiness rate in their, in their relationship, in their marriage. 15% said that they had a higher satisfaction in their sex life. They rated higher than those that uh, lived together before marriage. And 12% better communication rate than those that didn't. Know what the stats say? Try before you buy simply does not work. It may be in vogue, it may be easy, it may be fun for a while, it might, might be popular, but the myth is doing tremendous damage to our relational worlds. It's crippling people's hearts. It's clouding people's relational worlds. And it's causing more and more and more people to bring junk into marriage and into relationships, baggage, and finding that the stuff they did before marriage really does impact life after marriage. It's getting in their way of a happily ever after. I see and hear about this in the real world all the time. I mean, not too long ago, I was having a conversation with a bunch of guys, and uh, the conversation came up when we were talking about the impact of this whole sex before marriage or even just not taking purity seriously in our relationships before marriage and the impact that it has on our marriages now. And there was uh, a couple of the different guys jumped in and just talked about the way that it took years and years and years to rebuild trust that was broken before marriage because they weren't careful with this whole issue of purity. I told uh, somebody recently, and I'll, I'll share it with you too, sometime I'm gonna, I've got this crazy idea, but I'm gonna set up a panel someday <laughs> of a few couples, of some that took purity seriously, that, that tried as hard as they could to, to, uh, to walk this line of following God in a relationship before marriage. And I'm gonna have them share about some of the benefits that, that that's caused for them after marriage, right? And how the increased love and trust and respect and all those things, how that really has impacted their marriage. And then I'm gonna talk about the other side of it, of those that didn't, that live with regret sometimes and shame, that have had to try and rebuild trust and try and rebuild uh, some of what was damaged beforehand because, man, it's real. I'm telling you, it's, I, I see this in counseling situations all the time. I hear about it. I heard about it in my office twice this week, the devastating consequences that come when we don't take this, this whole teaching of the Bible, this teaching of God seriously about purity. It affects us in marriage. It affects us uh, before marriage. It affects us years and years and years into marriage, sometimes uh, for our entire relationship life cycle. Well, today I want to push back on this whole try before you buy thing, this whole mentality that's so pervasive in our culture that's become the norm of what we experience in our society today. I'm going to push back on that, and I want us to consider a different way, a better way. I want us to consider God's way. Uh, in this whole issue of purity. I get that it's countercultural. I get that it might peg your weird meter a little bit and be like, what is this, the 1950s? Right? I get that that's different, but man, I'll tell you, the stats say, I would say, so many others would say, man, it's true. This works. If you'll open up your heart to what God has for you today. You with me? Yeah. That was weak. You with me? Yeah. All right. If you've got your Bibles, open them up to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to walk through one passage today. Otherwise, you can follow along on your screens. You can pull it up on your Bible app if you want version. Um, it's all over the place. But Ephesians 5, starting with verse 1, we're going to just kind of walk through a passage. I'm going to read through it first and go back and just kind of highlight three different things. All right. Ephesians 5, starting with verse 1. It says this, follow God's example. 
therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not even be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, uh, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Verse 8. For you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light itself. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Man, I have to say, I know it's, like I said, I know it might peg your weird meter a little bit, but it's a great passage of scripture. God has tons to say in here. I want us to zoom in on three specific things. The first thing I want us to zoom in on is verse three, where he says, not even a hint. You must not even have a hint of sexual immorality. The word there is actually, the Greek word is porneia. Where do you think, what word do you think we get in the English language from that word? Porno. Pornography, right? Porneia. There shouldn't even be a hint of sex, sexual immorality, sex outside of the context of marriage. There shouldn't even be a hint of any kind of impurity, which is a different word, which means sort of lust-filled thoughts or actions, or of greed. And it's not talking about money here, right? It's, it's talking about that excessive desire, that lust for more, because these are improper. These are not good for God's holy people. God says, this whole try before you buy thing, this is not my plan. It'll never work. Instead, purity matters, he says. He says, this is my plan before marriage, not even a hint of sexual immorality or impurity. Don't even talk about it. Don't even consider it outside of the context of marriage. Not even a hint. That's strong, don't you think? Not even, not even a glance in the general direction, not even a thought in that way. Now, this just sort of smacks in the face of a culture that's consumed by sex these days, a culture that says, do whatever you want, push the boundaries, it's no big deal. I mean, even Christians flirt with this. I would say most of us as Christ followers could probably acknowledge, even if we wouldn't say it out loud, in the back of our heads we'll say, yeah, God says that sex outside of the context of marriage is wrong, right? It's a sin. But the next question that will come to mind, the next question that comes out of people's mouths is, I wonder how close I can get to, to sex, right, to, to that line. How close can I, can I get up to that absolute line without actually sinning, Right? How far, how close can I get to this? How far can I push this whole idea? It's like this elderly couple. 
that I read about, right? They had a lot of resources and they had money and so they were gonna hire somebody to drive them around, like a driving Miss Daisy or something, I don't know. But they're gonna hire somebody to drive them around and the woman interviewed three different, uh, three different potential drivers and she said to him, boy, I mean, we've got this driveway and it curves around, we've got this big retaining wall that goes up and uh, if you're not careful, you could scratch the car as you go by it. So she, she asked each of, these, each of these drivers, she said, boy, how close do you think you could come uh, to that wall without scratching the car? And the first guy stepped up, he said, well, you know, I've been driving for quite a while. I've been driving for quite some time. And he said, uh, I bet I can get within a foot pretty regularly and still not even put a scratch on your car. I'm just that good a driver. And the guy said, right? I've been driving even longer. He said, I bet I could get four, five, maybe six inches from there. And I, I could prove it. He's like, you know, without even getting a scratch or a nick on your car. And the third guy steps up and he says, you know, I can see how valuable and how important your car is to you. He's like, and let me tell you this. I will stay so far away from it that you won't ever even have to worry about a scratch getting put on your car. That's the one she hired, Right? I mean, I get that it's a completely different way to think about it. But instead of asking ourselves, boy, how close can I get to that? How much can I push this and try and, right, try and get as much as I can without maybe crossing over the line? Instead of pushing that, maybe the right question is, how close can I stay to God? And how far can I steer myself away from what, what God would say is a train wreck waiting to happen? How close can I stay to God? Because if purity matters to him and I want my life to align with his, then purity should matter to me too. I saw a video on the internet yesterday about a turkey hunter. I've got a picture, I think, yeah. About a turkey hunter. <laughs> now, I don't know, any, any turkey hunters here? Okay, that uh, figures, that's just sad for me. But anyway, uh, up in Wisconsin, there's a lot of people that hunted turkeys uh, up there. And actually, hunting a turkey is kind of tricky because these things have, because of the position of their eyes on their head, they have more than 180 degree field of vision and they have really good eyesight. So man, it's like 200 or something degree field of vision. It's crazy. And, uh, and they have great vision. So they can see you coming from like forever away, right? It's hard to sneak up on them. And, uh, and so it, it's actually kind of an art. It's kind of a skill. But anyway, I'm watching this video yesterday and I was kind of laughing my head off. The guy on the ground has a turkey decoy in front of him, right? And, and he's kind of trying to move the thing around like a turkey and he's kind of, I mean, he might have a turkey call or something, I don't know. But, uh, and he's kind of sneaking up on these guys and all of a sudden, uh, the male turkeys in, in the uh, bunch there in the background, they kind of get, uh, they kind of, this turkey decoy kind of gets their attention and say, wow. <laughs> That's a hunk of turkey right there, right? I mean, they're like, and so they kind of come strutting and they're kind of fighting a little bit. And then this one comes running up to, to the decoy, right? And so the hunter's back there and he's hiding now. Right? He's just, and the thing's running full steam ahead. Like, I mean, probably driven by hormones at this point, right? Running full speed ahead, right up to this, the, until the thing gets like maybe a foot or two feet away, the hunter pulls out his gun and shoots it. Boom, game over. And I, I was thinking about this, and I'm watching this and going, I mean, I get that it's turkey hunting and stuff, but almost, there's part of you that's watching this turkey run forward, and you're almost like, you just want to call out, man, don't you know? Like, this is a trap, right? What are you doing? You're going to die, right, if you keep running. He's running up and whatever. He's driven by hormones. He doesn't care what's going on. But you're just kind of sitting there wishing you could warn them. And let me just say this. That's sexual temptation right there. 
Right? That's what it's like. The question is not, how close can I get? Are you kidding? The question is not, well, what if we sleep together but don't actually have sex? The question is not, well, what if we move in together but in separate bedrooms? It'll be okay, right? What if we, what if we uh, mess around but we don't technically have sex? What if I just, or, or we just kind of look at some porn on the internet? I mean, it's not going to hurt you. It's not, not a big deal, right? We get closer and closer and closer, not knowing we are in grave danger, right? God's not messing around with this. He's saying, man, this, this is a dangerous thing. Sex is awesome, right? Living together is awesome. He created it. We'll get there in a second. I'm getting ahead of myself. But it's designed for the context of marriage. He says, anything outside of that? And he's saying, look out. There's an enemy hiding behind this decoy, and he's going to take you out. There are some of us that are here today that we need to hear that desperately. Because, man, I'll tell you what, we're about to get taken out. Not even a hint, God says, of sexual immorality. He's like, man, you want to know what my plan is? Not even a hint. Say, not even a hint. Say it again. Say, not even a hint. Not even a hint. I have to say, if we memorized, if we committed this one verse, Ephesians 5.3, we committed this and... That little bit of it, not even a hint of sexual immorality. You commit that to memory and you put it into practice in your life. Man, I wonder how much pain could be spared. I wonder how much we could protect ourselves, protect our lives, protect our future and our present marriages if we were just to cling and hold on to this one verse. Not even a hint. It answers so many questions, right? Is porn okay? Not even a hint, right? How far is too far? Not even a hint. Is it okay to flirt with somebody other than my wife or my husband? Is it okay to sort of walk down that path a little bit? Just in my mind, nobody will get hurt. Not even a hint, he says. What about sleeping together if we don't technically? Not even a hint, he says. Is it okay to, for me to wear a, you know, a top that's going to attract the male attention of everybody in the zip code? Not even a hint. Guys, is it okay to look? What's the answer? What is the, what's the answer? Not even a hint. Say it. Not even a hint. No. It answers the question. It calls us to purity. It calls us to something different. Friends, there are some of us that are here today, and we have gone way beyond a hint. And we've got some backpedaling to do. We've got some repenting to do. We've got some turning away from our sin and turning back to God to do this morning. Asking him to forgive, asking him to make us new, asking him to lead us on from here. Because purity is a huge deal, and the enemy wants to use it to take you out. Not even a hint. Say it one more time. Not even a hint. Not a hint. Second thing I just wanted to, to hit is not a prude, right? God is not a prude. This is not about God being some cosmic killjoy that's saying, man, I hate sex. Sex is bad. You should never have it. You should. This, God is not a prude. That's not what he wants. That's not even the way he sets it up. He starts out in Ephesians 5, 1 through 2, and he says this. He says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. He says, you're dearly loved children to the Father. 
and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I won't spend much time on this, but I just love the reminder here. If you have put your faith and your hope in Christ, if you're his, then you are his dearly loved child. He's crazy about you. He thinks you're worth dying for. That's how seriously he takes you. He's for you. He wants what's best for you. And so he reminds the readers, he reminds his church at this point, he says, boy, don't, don't lose sight of this. This is the foundation. God is crazy about you. He's for you. He died. He loves you so much so that you can live, so that you can experience life. And, that, and then he says, now, rem being reminded that that's how valuable you are to God, he says, now hear this. Not even a hint of sexual immorality. He's not doing it because he wants to keep you from sex. God created sex. Did you ever think of that? God came up. He dreamed this up in his brain, right? God sometime at creation or before was dreaming and saying, you know what? <laughs> I've got this great idea, right? He's like, I'm going to create this amazing experience for husbands and wives, and it's going to be amazing. It's going to be way beyond physical, to the point where it's gonna be a mingling of souls so that they are no longer two, but one. It's gonna be the most intimate thing imaginable. And I'm gonna create this, I'm gonna make it pleasurable, and I'm gonna give it to husbands and wives. And I'm gonna surround it with so much mystery that it's gonna take them decades and decades to really get this thing figured out. It's gonna be amazing. It's what's best but it's done in the context of marriage, right? God created, God's for sex. He's for great sex, I might even say, right? Between a husband and a wife. And he says, that's how it works best. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. God is not some prude. This is about how life works best. This is about how sex works best. It's how relationships works best. And God says, I care about you so much. Let me show you the best way to live. Even sex and relationships, even marriage, it's all a faith gig. And God is asking you and me, will you trust me? Trust me enough to do it my way. My word tells you what's best, God says. The stats back it up. Even common sense will point you towards trusting God with this stuff. But the question comes down for you and for me is, will we trust him? Will I trust him enough to follow him? Enough to follow his path of purity. Enough to follow his path towards godliness, towards waiting. It's uncommon, I'll give you that. But it's good. And he's good and wise and trustworthy. He's a caring father. He says, this is how life works best. Not even a hint. He's not a prude. He wants what's best for you and for me. Not a hint, not a prude. And then I, the third one I just put, not a thing better <laughs> than having Christ's light shine on you. Ephesians 5, 8 through 14 has this back and forth that it says, just listen to this. For you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. 
It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that's illuminated becomes a light. That's why it's said, wake up, sleeper, and rise from the dead, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Man, I love that. Christ will shine on you. Christ specializes in bringing dead things back to life. And as people step away from sin and they turn back towards him, he shines his light on you. He shines his love. He shines his power and presence, shines even his blessing on you. And there's nothing better. Today actually is, is our anniversary, Tina and my 18th wedding anniversary. Oh, look at those little young punks. Everybody should say, aw, yeah. You think we look young now? Man, we looked really, really, really young then. I can remember sitting uh, on the steps of our first house when we were up in Wisconsin and having some solicitor come by trying to sell something. He said, hi, kids, are your parents home? I'm like, this is my house. Like, what are you talking about? Come on. But it's our 18th wedding anniversary. We've been around uh, together probably for about 20, 21 years, and we were friends uh, for several years before that. But it's been a really good marriage. It really has been. It's required work. It's required choosing one another and more importantly, choosing God on a regular basis over my own selfishness, which I've found to be pretty extreme, right? And it's, been, it's, it's required dying to that again and again and again and again and truly learning to love and to submit and to surrender and to serve and to love in a way that I didn't even know existed before I was married. It's required a lot of grace. It's required forgiveness all the way around the deal, right? Because we screw up all the time and we have to come back to each other and to God and say we're sorry. But it's been overall, it's been really, really good. 18 years. This whole issue of purity was one that was important to Tina and I before we even started dating. We, we actually sat down together and uh, both of us were, were uh, living our lives for Christ, wanted more than anything to live a life and uh, to uh, have a relationship that was really centered around God, really centered around Christ's plans and was God-honoring. And so uh, we sat down before we even started dating and said, man, I'm concerned about this. And I see around me all the way that the physical stuff tends to consume people's relationships. The physical stuff gets in the way, the damage that gets done in relationships because they don't take this issue of purity seriously. And so uh, and we had kind of made a commitment together and said, well, we want our relationship to be God-honoring. We want it to, to embody this whole purity value. And so, of course, we knew that, it, you know, that at a minimum requires and, and is a commitment to saying, okay, we're not going to have sex until we're married. But, but the thing is, I understand enough about how temptation works and my own limitations in the face of temptation uh, that... I was a little afraid. I'm like, I'm not sure. I mean, if, if I get too close to that, to that decoy, right, I will fall. And so we backed it up and backed it up and backed it up and backed it up. And for us, I'm not saying this is what everybody needs to do, but for us, we made a commitment, again, before we even started dating, and said, you know what, we're not even going to kiss until we're engaged. And so we, we didn't do this perfectly or anything, uh, but... This is important to us, and we said, okay, and we didn't. We didn't. The first time I kissed her was a week or two after uh, we got engaged, uh, maybe a year later. And, uh, and I mean, that was a big deal. I mean, I, I recognize that's extreme. That might peg your weird meter, and you're like, what is that? I mean, that about. But I'll tell you what. 
we were so concerned and so uh, had our hearts so set on having a relationship that was God-honoring that it was worth it to us. And I have to say, in these days, you know, 18, 19, 20 years later, whatever, man, I have to say so much of our relationship, I look back, I just, it, to me, it just seems like God's smile on us and God's blessing because we've chosen again and again and again. Now, have we screwed up? Of course we've screwed up, right? I, we're, it's the same as everybody. But we've consistently come back, asked for God's forgiveness, and tried to walk the path of God. And I feel like, man, there's nothing better we have seen and experienced his presence in our family, in our marriage. We've come to know his forgiveness more fully. We've come to, to really experience God and his love and his forgiveness more and more as a family. And I think a lot of it is because we've said, you know what? We're going to try and follow and live out this value in our relationship. As a result, trust has been built over 20-some years. And you know what? I trust Tina completely. She trusts me completely. She doesn't have to worry if I'm half an hour late coming home or if I'm on the computer or if I'm whatever. She, she knows my heart. We've, we've set up boundaries. We've set up things about that. And there's been trust that's been built over and over and over. And I just love the way uh, this Ephesians passage uh, talks about that whole deal, right? The whole, the whole, uh, the whole picture of uh, God's sort of smiling, God's favor, sort of blessing and being on, uh, on us as we look to and as we follow him. I, I just was thinking to myself, man, that sounds pretty good, huh? Could any of the rest of us maybe use uh, a little bit more of God's presence, seeing his plan and his favor shining on you these days? Shining on your relationships, shining on your family, shining on your home. Anybody use a little bit more blessing in their lives these days? Huh? Yeah. You think? <laughs> Absolutely. Throughout God's book, there's a contrast that gets used over and over, this contrast between light and darkness. Darkness tends to represent sin. The things that we do in secret and in the dark, the things that don't line up with God's perfect design. Even after the sin occurs itself, oftentimes it, we keep it hidden. We don't want, want to let anybody else know. We don't want anybody else to see. And as a result, we live with regret and shame and guilt and fear of getting found out. That's what it's like in the dark. But then the light is different. It represents God's presence. It represents his redemption. It represents his freedom, his truth, and his life. And friends, when we own our sins and our junk from the past, we confess it to God, even to our spouse or to others. We ask God to forgive us and cleanse us and help us to live differently. We sort of drag it from the darkness out into the light. That's where God does his best work. That's where transformation happens. That's where freedom happens. That's where the good stuff comes. And there is nothing better. It's infinitely better than anything else we've ever experienced before. God's power and presence brings freedom and forgiveness and allows us to live a new life. When we start talking about God's standard for purity, we start talking about not even a hint of sexual immorality, of impurity. The truth is all of us have stuff that's in the darkness, don't we? We've all got stuff from our past We've all, some of us have stuff in our present that we would prefer to stay buried. Maybe you've been a player and you've gone from person to person to person and the truth is is that you've been walking in darkness. 
Maybe you've been a trying before you, you buy-in kind of person, right? And you've been living with or sleeping with somebody that's not your spouse and you've been living in darkness. Maybe there's porn in your past or your present and you've been walking in darkness. Maybe there's some same-sex stuff that's happened in your past or your present and you've been walking in darkness. And today I believe that God is calling you and he's calling me out of the darkness and out into the light. You don't have to live, you don't have to stay stuck or trapped by the junk of your past. The ways that you have blown it in your past or your present do not have to be the story of your future. The best time, I will say this, the best time to do what was right was yesterday, right, is the past. The second best time to do what is right is when? Today, right? Right now. Don't wait till tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation, Scripture tells us. Today is an opportunity for new life, for an opportunity for you to become new again. Today can be a fresh start with God. Today can be an opportunity to come clean with God. It can be a day of transformation, a day of healing, a day of freedom. God can make you new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 puts it this way, Therefore, if anybody is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The new creation has come. The old is gone. Behold, the new is here. You may fall into one of the categories or one of the stats that I mentioned earlier, but God can heal and restore and redeem. He can beat the odds if you'll turn to him this morning. You may have slept with somebody in the past, but God can make you pure again. You may have blown up your marriage, but God can make it new if you're willing. You may have sex addiction stuff in your past, and it might be very dark. Maybe there's a list and a string of relationships and partners that goes on and on, but God can forgive and transform and heal and make you new. He can. Who knows how far you've strayed? Who knows how hopeless the situation may seem, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many times you've failed. Today is the day to turn to Christ and trust him afresh, to turn to him and cry out, I need you. I've made a mess of things in my life. I have not upheld these issues of purity. I have walked my own way. Maybe I've, you know, did the try before you buy thing. I've been looking at stuff I shouldn't. I've been flirting with with somebody I shouldn't have been. I've been sleeping with somebody I shouldn't have been. God, would you forgive me? Would you cleanse me? Would you make me new? I need you, Jesus. Today is the day. The Bible says, boy, if we turn to him like that in faith, he will come and, and we confess our sin to him. He will cleanse us. He will free us. He will wash us. He will make us new. I'm not sure where you're at with God today. I'm not sure especially how he's prompting you. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been living your life pretty far from God. Your past is peppered maybe with sin, sexual sin or lust or immorality or whatever. And maybe this morning is an opportunity. God is calling you out from the darkness into his perfect, freeing, grace-filled light. He's calling you home just to come and just open up your heart and your life to him and say, I need you, Jesus. Would you come and wash me? Would you come and make me new? Maybe there's a relationship in your present uh, and you're living together or sleeping together or whatever and God is speaking to you this morning saying not even a hint. And maybe he's, maybe he's speaking to you and saying, you know, it's time. Maybe you need to break up. You need to, to move out with this person that's not your spouse. You need to backpedal. You need to quit playing house or whatever. 
Maybe God's speaking and you need to come and see me or come and see Tina. Maybe uh, come to another one of the leaders here at Ignite and uh, get some accountability and some help because you feel trapped in the downward cycle. You're living in the darkness and maybe God is, is saying, man, come Come and get some help. Come and get prayed for. Come and help. Have somebody help point you to Jesus so that you can find freedom and life this morning. Maybe if you're honest, you're in a relationship and the entire thing is about sex. And maybe you just need to break it off with that guy or gal that isn't your spouse. Maybe you've been pushing the boundaries a bit. Maybe you, you haven't slept with your girlfriend or boyfriend yet, but you're flirting with it. And maybe God's calling you to back off or to cut it off with that person. Maybe you're married, but you've been flirting with this idea of an affair with somebody around you. You haven't taken action yet, but God is saying not even a hint. And it's time for you to repent, to turn away from that, to turn back to God and get right with him and with your spouse today. I don't know what God may be, may be saying to you. But let me tell you, friends, there is nothing better, right, than living our lives with God, with Christ in the picture, of aligning ourselves with his plan, with his values of purity, of life, of relationship. When we do so, there's nothing better. Let's close in prayer. God, that's our cry this morning. We come as sinful and messed up and broken people. God, all of us have stuff and ways, probably, that we've been living in the darkness. And Father, I pray that this morning by your Spirit that you would draw us from the darkness into, into your light. God, give us courage and boldness to not just hear what you say, but to do what you say today. If there are some of us that need to cut off a relationship with somebody that's that's not our spouse. Lord, give us courage. Help us to do that today. If there's ways that we just need to come before you, broken and a wreck, and just open up our hearts and lives and just say, I need you, Jesus. I have made a mess of things. Would you come and heal? Would you come and forgive? Would you come and restore what's been damaged? Would you make me new? Help us just to turn to you today. Help us to embrace and live out this value of purity. We just say, God, would your kingdom come? Would your will be done? Have your way in us, in our relationships, in our marriages, in our interaction, our thoughts, our hearts, our lives.